0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. What does Angela Merkel saying nine to another term as Germany's chancellor mean for the country and the European Union? And is Brazil's new far-right populist president as good for markets as investors reckon? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking News columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry and with me here is my co-host Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello.
1: Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel is calling it quits. During her 13 years running the world's fourth largest economy, she has become the de facto leader of the European Union and of late the free world, as well as a bulwark against populism. Joining us from London is Global Breaking Views economics editor Swaha Patenike to discuss this pivotal announcement. Welcome Swaha. Hi, Jen. Hello. So, um, Swaha, as as an American, I need you to kind of set this up for me because I'm not quite clear on exactly what's happening here. So she's not going to run as chancellor, but she's also stepping down from her party's leadership. Can you just kind of explain quickly how this works in Germany?
2: Of course. So Merkel has, uh, up till now, been very trenchant on the fact that whoever runs the party is the chancellor. What she's doing is she's stepping down as chairwoman of her party. It's called the Christian Democrats or the CDU. But she wants okay. to carry on and serve her full term as chancellor, which runs until 2021.
1: So what is the possibility? Because I, my understanding is Germany can call an election at any point, or when one party's out of power,
2: how does that work? I mean, to be honest, you can, they have, you can run a minority government if you like. I mean, the first okay. question is going to be whether or not Merkel stays on. Um, and runs through the whole term as chancellor. Right, may depend a lot on who gets the chair of the party, which she is handing down. She's not going to stand for re-election. They are going to decide who's the next chair in December. She's not stepping up to the plate to be in the mix. Nor She's also said, as you pointed out, Jen, at the beginning, she doesn't want to run again for chancellor. She's just making it clear she wants to finish this term. That's not absolutely guaranteed, though.
0: let's just put this in a a bit more context. So just to be clear, I mean, she's been party chairwoman for 18 years. She's been chancellor for 13 years. And she's also um, now running her second big coalition government with the Social Democrats after the 2017 elections. And that's all part of the problem, right, that that both of those two big parties, which are normally at loggerheads with each other, um, took a long time to come up with the coalition uh, and since then have been under increasing attack for being ineffective under her leadership. With the rise of the right wing, that the, the AfD, um, as, well, as well as the Greens, luckily it's not just the right wing that's 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 getting bigger, and that's continued into this year, which is one reason why she's making this announcement. Right, it's all to do with 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 elections within a couple of states of Germany this year.
2: Exactly, there's been uh, the state of Hesse was um, the one that basically triggered it. You have. Uh, a state that, you know, they came first in that election, her party, the CDU, but their support for the party fell by more than 11 points. Now, it's not just her party that's suffering. The junior coalition partner, who, as you point out, the Social Democrats, are more centre-left rather than centre-right, like Merkel's party, are also doing very badly. Their polling in that state was their worst result since 1946 for that, that particular state of Hesse. So they are being tarred and feathered with the brush of being in coalition and compromising on all sorts of left-leaning policies. So the people who traditionally support the SPD, that's the center-left party, want to say, well, why are you in government? You don't seem to be doing anything we would want to elect you for. So it's putting real strains on this coalition.
1: Okay. So Swaha, let's step back a little bit and maybe talk about uh, Merkel's legacy so far and what she's done for Germany, because when I stand back and look at, at Germany, it seems like it's stable, the economy's humming along it doesn't seem to have uh, issues of its other um, Euro- European Union uh, counterparts including Great Britain um, what what's going on you know what what did she do and also why all of a sudden this sort of like unrest
2: I mean Merkel, on the economic front, is probably reaping the benefits of what her predecessor Schroeder, Gerhard Schroeder, did. Um, he instituted, he was from the center-left SPD party, and instituted some labor reforms that were critical. It took a while to come through, but Merkel's basically been reaping the benefits of those reforms, and the economy's doing very well. They've run the budget very well, and everything's being kept tickety-boo, but... You couldn't say she initiated those reforms. She's inherited okay. the, uh, the, the benefits. What she has done, however, at European level is very important. She's been not just a consensus builder at home by building these grand coalitions, but also in Europe, where she's bridged differences, made compromises, which were probably for the greater good rather than what the mass of Germans wanted necessarily when it comes to you know, writing off, uh, sort of helping out Greece, uh, doing stuff that may have perhaps been beyond the pale for people who like fiscal austerity as a rule in Germany. So that was her European legacy, if you like, all of that starts to shift when she's as she's exiting, and even before that, because she's basically fragile as a uh, chancellor now, and there's uh, a fight breaking out about who's going to get the chair.
0: So I mean, that, that's the big thing, isn't it? So that whatever happens with this um, election in December to be chair, woman or chairman of the party will determine the course of the party. As I understand it, you know, Merkel would always uh, portray her party as being. The party of the middle, the real middle, which of course offended those on the to the right of her party, um, and that's who I think one of the main contenders is now. Correct, I think, um, uh, who may be coming in. And if a, a right-leaning member of the CDU takes over, then as, as leader of the party, then that makes it very difficult for the two for the two of them, her as chancellor, him probably as as party leader, to have an effective way of governing. So that puts her position as chancellor under threat sooner than 2021 i would have thought
2: absolutely you're absolutely right anthony and it's also a case of if the cdu feel that they're doing so badly for policies that merkel has been following and we should say one of the policies that have alienated some traditional cdu voters is the decision that she took in 2015 to open the doors to a million asylum seekers Mm. um And you're right, the Greens have benefited, it's not just the AFD, but that's also one of the things that the next chair has to think about what sort of line to take. So if you start getting the CDU under a new chair tacking back to the centre-right rather than centre-centre or even verging on centre-left because they've had to make some compromises, it causes real tensions with the SPD who are already wondering whether too far in the centre, whether they need to move a little more leftwards in fact.
0: Yeah, So you could see the breakup of the coalition. You could see, um, if even if that doesn't happen first, you could see Merkel stepping out as chancellor earlier. And then if that happens, of course, you've got a whole series of issues, as you mentioned earlier. She's been very good at keeping Europe, relatively speaking, let's leave Great Britain aside, relatively speaking, um, unified on a number of things, or at least not as uh, ununified as they could have been. Whoever takes over, if they end up running as, as part of the leader, if they end up being chancellor, That makes uh, the European Union's uh, decision-making process even more tough as well, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of problems at the moment. A Eurozone economic reform, which was seen as so needed after the last crisis, still hasn't been completely finished. There were compromises that Monsieur Macron wanted. He won't get as long as she's seen as a lame-duck chancellor or perhaps with somebody new who's even harder line. The other problem is what line Germany takes on... Countries that sort of flout the EU budget rules. Uh, this, we're now not talking about the likes of Greece. We're talking about Italy, the Eurozone's third biggest economy, which is basically saying, I don't care what promises we made before. Here's the budget I'm going to stick to. We made mm. promises to our people when we were elected. Germans, you know, as a population, have had to go through austerity themselves in the past. Don't see why others won't. Um, so there's a bit of you know, misunderstanding, perhaps, mm. but it's also the next chancellor may have to take a harder line on Italy, and that's going to be a real fight.
1: So Swaha, if you had to uh, peer into a crystal ball, who do you think, or which party do you think is going to seize power there?
2: I mean, the CDU is still coming first. The problem is German politics is becoming more fractured, and the ability to form a coalition that's stable, that has a lot of common ground to be able to rule in fair harmony, is become less and less. It took a lot, long time to put this coalition together. The liberal FDP party walked away from Merkel during the negotiations. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming harder to get enough uh, mainstream parties having the number of votes they need to do a coalition. It's really uh, going to be complicated uh, post-Merkel, I think.
0: OK, so one more prediction from you. This time next year, is Merkel still chancellor?
2: Oh, that's really cruel, Anthony. I'm going to say no.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I think I'd probably agree <laughs> you, with you.
2: You promise that you won't play this back to me next year.
0: Oh, no, 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 Only in public, with many people listening.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. I'll go for no. OK, thank you, Suaha. Thank you.
0: Jair Bolsonaro will be the next president of Brazil after winning last weekend's election with 55% of the vote. He's a little bit like Trump. In fact, in some respects, he's worse. He's said a fair number of things about raping women, about being in favour of torture and thinking that if gay people move into his house or into his apartment building, then the value will drop. Sounds like a nice guy, Martin Langfield, but you're here to discuss not so much that aspect of him, but whether what he thinks about uh, economic policies will actually last enough for the boost that the market has got to actually be realistic.
3: Uh, well, yes. Um, the question can legitimately be asked whether the embrace that markets have uh, given him so far um, is as entirely uh, rational as as uh, as some people might think.
0: So, what, what what happened in the run-up? I mean, we should say actually that the election got got pretty hairy at one point. Bolsonaro um, uh, himself got stabbed and almost did, died yes. during the campaign. Um, comes comes back wins the election. It's a runoff election after the 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 first round a couple of weeks ago. That's right. Um, And the the markets um, did what in the in the run
3: up. In the the run up in the uh, four to six weeks uh, before this election on Sunday, um, stocks were up well over ten percent. The real strength and uh, good ten percent against uh, against the dollar. So. Investors were bidding up Brazilian assets yeah. uh, in the obvious belief that well, there were various factors here. One was simply that he was not the other guy. Um, you had he was running in in the uh, Sunday second round uh, election. He was running against Fernando Adagi, who was the representative of the Workers Party and effectively a, a stand-in or surrogate for. Luis Inácio Lula de Silva, the, yeah. the the famous Lula, who yeah. was um, Brazilian president himself for two terms, who's in a jail cell. After. In fact,
0: didn't didn't um, the candidate go and see Lula at one point after a speech or, or something? Someone he, told he, me. Well, he'd been for the, advice.
3: He'd been uh, coordinating very closely with him. He'd been visiting him. Mm. Um, a lot. Um, the the campaign slogan was basically uh, Lula is Hadaji, Hadaji is Lula, yeah. which uh, may have played with the the base of the party, but didn't endear a lot of the rest of the country.
0: Because yeah. of course, we, of- if we stand back a bit and, and look back, I mean, the, the Workers Party would, it was in power for what four separate or it four won. consecutive. Um, it, uh,
3: it won uh, uh, every presidential election. Uh, going back uh, four elections um, it was in power Lula had two terms, Uh, Dilma Rousseff his hand-chosen successor had a full term and then a half term before she was impeached uh, over uh, um, uh, fiddling with the uh, uh, the national budgets and so forth
0: Corruption has been, uh, I don't know if rife is the the word, but corruption has certainly been been well noticed over the past few years No,
3: Absolutely, Um, and we should understand the election partly in that in that context, the Brazilians across the board are sick and tired of corruption, sick and tired of the political establishment. The uh, famous car wash corruption scandal um, that's um, grabbed everybody's attention for the last couple of years yeah. absolutely mired the Workers' Party in it, but also most of the other main parties. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Jair Bolsonaro was able to present himself as uh, a um, an outsider candidate, a non-establishment candidate, mm. uh, in in ways rather similar to the way Donald Trump uh, approached his election campaign. Um, and even though um, Bolsonaro has been uh, in the uh, the low House of Congress for uh, I think seven terms, yeah. so he's he's not really an outsider at all. But he was able to present himself that way,
0: right? So, um, but he has okay. I mentioned a few at the beginning, but he has a number of views which. Ought to have investors worried. Well, the, the, let's let's say markets. You know, the question of whether markets are moral is one we
3: can mm. talk about. You know, there's the certain sort of reptile aspect to markets, which is seeking advantage, and that's it, right? Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, and, and uh, there are perhaps some some bets being made here by by the uh, the embrace of investors of Bolsonaro. They are uh, firstly looking at his own record as a as a legislator and his past, he has not really been a free markets guy for, right. for most of his career. Now, he does have uh, his economic guru, Supremo, who's going to actually be in charge of a combined set of ministries, finance, uh, industry, and planning. Uh, so he's really going to be a like trade, a... trade, I
0: think, is in there as well, isn't uh, it?
3: Super, I think that's the... Yeah, yeah. He's going to be like a super minister. Um, and uh, Paolo Gages, who's a... Um, University of Chicago trained free market guy. Um, he's on his team, and uh, so, but that's a relatively recent thing in terms yeah. of uh, Bolsonaro's career. But,
0: but obviously, he's been given a lot of power in this this super ministry that combines four previous ministries, and he's he's very much in favour of, uh, I think, as you put it, privatising yeah. pretty much everything. Uh, um, yes,
3: he has been. I mean, he, he he effectively said that. Now, the thing is, uh, Bolsonaro's own record and a lot of the the ex military people around him, and so forth. Uh, have been more associated and, and some I'm sure would still take the view that um, there are certain core aspects of the Brazilian state in fact that you uh, that are going to be off limits to this approach and so you're going to have some tussling some compromising here so between that to be like well for example um, I think uh, oil and gas reserves right. and, and and so forth I think um and uh, electricity generation for example right. there's been uh, interest in in uh, to what extent uh, Eletrobras which is the um, electricity generating Outfit would be privatized. I, I think um, you're likely to find that bits of it, like down the further down, like the sort of distribution parts, mm. were more likely to receive that kind of treatment than the core activity. Right. And probably the same the notion of I mean, we'll see how this develops as um, Bolsonaro's government actually takes over in, in January. But the question of to what extent Petrobras uh, has a leading role mm. in, and in to what extent national content is required for people coming in to, to to work in Brazil. On the one hand, you've got this massive amount of oil that, you know, Brazil or any other country would need help, yeah. uh, you know, extracting. And, and uh, uh, on the other hand, you have the, you know, certainly the, from the, the, the military mindset is rather one of like strategic assets that yeah. uh, should not be touched. And so you'll see a lot of to and fro there and, uh, right. and you know, ultimately um, that will have to play itself out in right. his government, but that—that so that is a question, right? To what extent will his con- relatively recent conversion yeah. stick? To what extent will it run up against other aspects of uh, what he wants to right. do with so the people he's surrounding himself yeah. with? So
0: that—that's that's the first bet, that, right? That you're thinking investors are making. The second one, I think, concerns the rule of law, and I think you know if we look back over the past few years, with the car wash scandal especially. We see the rule of law actually coming through. It it
3: does, and it should be noted that the that Rousseff never tried to to stop the uh, the car wash investigation, and she was not actually brought down as part of car wash. It was something else, but and it was you know arguably indeed a very political move. Right. Um, The Workers' Party views it as a as a coup. I think you know um, that may be over egging it. But um, in any case, uh, Carwash car Wash wasn't even the first scandal that the Workers' Party uh, was involved in. There was the previous one under Lula, which was uh, called the Mensalau, which is to do with bribery in, yeah. in Congress and so forth. But uh, with regard to the rule of law, um, you know, Bolsonaro, he's made a, a, a career out of saying inflammatory things, obviously. Yeah. Um, but he, he has, um, you know, indicated ideas like, you know, he'd be quite happy if the police like shot more criminals or suspected yeah. criminals. Uh, he's... Uh, He's made um, comments about, uh, you know, stacking the Supreme Court in order to change its uh, approach. Right. Um, now, though, to be fair to him, he did recently uh, slap down uh, his son over comments about sending soldiers to close down the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, this was
0: just prior to Sunday's election. Um, right, but again, it's you know, you've got a, a history of... Him thinking one thing, and now there seems to be a switch towards him at least uh, in part embracing well he where a, the country's been coming from.
3: He made a point of, uh, you know, holding the constitution, saying I will rule according to the constitution, which is, you know, the minimum you would expect, actually, yes. is it not? I mean, if Rather you've got to stand up and
0: say that, it should be a bit of a concern. Uh,
3: right. So there is the question of at least he has some, I don't mean to minimize this, but he has some pretty odd ideas of what the rule of law might consist of. And yeah. so, you know, and foreign investment does require. Um, of law, it does yeah. require not only, uh, but uh, an environment of rule of law, and so um, the the bet here is that he won't be diminishing that. Yeah. Uh, um, he won't be turning things into more of a sort of personalist sort of approach to such yeah. matters. Of the yeah. great man says this is okay, the great man says yeah. this is not okay, which you know you see in uh, goodness me other countries too. Yeah. Do you not?
0: Yes, absolutely. Putting those two together, you've you already got certain things coming through. So you mentioned that the super. Um, ministry will be created on, on the, the finance side. Also he's talking about um, merging the environment and agriculture yes. ministries which seems to imply that um, to me at least that agriculture, the agri- big agribusiness will do well and that, that maybe the environment is going to suffer somewhat from this and Am- the Amazon being uh, that, that crucial is the, in so many respects. That is the Amazon. obvious concern
3: of putting those two yeah. together and uh, his his uh, support is um, the um, farmers are like very much part mm-hmm. of his core what they call the BBB Uh, Support, which um, in in, in Portuguese, which is uh, people translating different orders, but it's Mm. basically beef, bullets, and Bible. Right. And uh, the beef part of it there, the farmer part, the farmer lobby is obviously one that's uh, been a big backer of his. Um, And so those are two bets. The third bet that we talked about is simply getting stuff through Congress. Now, um, and that's
0: the thing. That's, that's partly why I was bringing up the, 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 this second ministry agglomeration because I, I was just thinking he can push these together and give the impression that, say, agribusiness will do better on his administration, but he's got to get so many things past Congress. Well,
3: he, here's, here's the thing that whoever won the election was going to have to deal with, right, yeah. which is the uh, gaping fiscal deficit uh, that, that Brazil has, and the need to get that under control. Um, the, the biggest component of that, uh, without doubt, is... Um, the country's uh, pension uh, system, which is, uh, which needs, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderfully generous, but it's unsustainably generous. And, um, you know, if that is not addressed, and and to address it Deeply and properly, you probably need constitutional reform, which requires like you know a big stack of legislators. Right, and
0: and we're not looking at a con- at a country's congress in Brazil, which is like America's, where you've got basically two parties. Okay, with offshoots, so you're going to an extent, you're gonna have you're going to have thirty parties yeah, that's, in, in the lower just, house. It's amazing to, to and, an American audience, I would think.
3: And uh, now here's the thing: um, traditionally, the way you sort of uh, corral people and dragoon them into yeah. into um, Moving laws through Congress um, consists at the very least of uh, good old-fashioned sort of pork-barrel politics, um, the sort of trading of cabinet jobs for legislative favors, the horse trading. But, you know, as we saw under the Workers' Party, uh, out-and-out bribery as well. Now, uh, Bolsonaro has come to power on a very, um, very clear um, anti-corruption, very clear anti-establishment platform saying we're not going to do this. In the old ways. And so the the challenge there is is um, quite, you know, to what extent can the reforms that Brazil clearly needs uh, to, to write its fiscal ship um, be driven through through Congress? And yeah. that's that's, you know, that's an open question. And I think a fair question to ask.
0: Yeah. And one that I mean, you know, we've got so many different pieces here that that, that Bosnia has to grapple with. But surely corralling 30 different parties or so, enough of them to get a majority for some of his legislation is going to be one of his biggest challenges.
3: It's, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges without a doubt. Yeah. I think they recognize it as such. Um, Pablo Guedes has been, you know, very sort of quick out of the gate saying that uh, pension reform is like uh, one of the priorities. They absolutely want to do it sooner than later. At the same time, uh, just today, the, um, the uh, Speaker of the Lower House, Rodrigo Mayer. Uh, he's been saying oh you know conditions for that are nowhere near close yeah. now now this is um, you know he may or may not stay on the speaker as, as things develop there in in Congress but um, and uh, they'll the, the I think the cabinet um, announcements will come next week perhaps from bolsonaro for the the government that he intends to have in place next year takes office in early January um, but there's a, a question partly as well as what he, to the extent that he has political capital and he has. Momentum. You know, what does he spend it on? Does yeah. he spend it, you know, on getting? Does he spend it on uh, primarily on on the the fiscal question? Or does he spend it on? Uh, pleasing uh, the various people who uh, have been his uh, his biggest backers, as again the BBB lobby, right? So gun laws and uh, making things right. easier, etc. It's uh, we don't know yet. We'll see. But um, they, they are challenges indeed.
0: Well, Martin, thanks for talking us through that. It looks like a fascinating scenario we should keep an eye on, and we'll get you back on the show once more things develop. Thanks again. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Swaha Patanayak and Martin Langfield for coming on the show. We doff our hats, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ross Scholder, Andrew D'Antonio, and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to the views room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.